Hi, this is Kate. Just before you listen to this next episode, I wanted to let you know about an opportunity with Amicable. As you may know, we're thrilled about the upcoming historic change in the divorce law. And I know that for many of you too, this has been a long time coming. So if you are waiting for the introduction of the no-fault system, and you're happy to share your story with others, then please get in touch with Amicable today. We're looking for couples who are happy to talk to the media about this seismic change in the law. Please contact us no later than the 24th of March using the email address hello at amicable.co.uk. Thanks very much. Enjoy this next episode. The Divorce Podcast. Welcome to The Divorce Podcast, a podcast that aims to address divorce here in the UK, countering the often sensationalist way it's portrayed in the media, challenging the status quo and hopefully driving reform. On each episode, I'm joined by experts to discuss divorce from different angles and to give their opinions and to debate them. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor and divorce coach, co-founder of Amicable, the divorce services company and host of The Divorce Podcast. During this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Nigel Shepherd, twice chair, honorary life member and current National Committee member of Resolution, advisor to family law funder Ampler Finance and consultant with the national law firm Mills and Reeve. The firm and Nigel in particular were given permission to intervene in the now infamous Teeny Owens case. Nigel has been campaigning for no-fault divorce for over 25 years and was awarded the John Cornwall Award for Outstanding Contribution to Family Law at the Jordan's Family Law Awards in 2019. Nigel, you are Mr. No-Fault Divorce and I am very, very honoured to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Delighted to be here, Kate. So, Nigel, you were one of our first ever guests on the Divorce Podcast. That was some two years ago now. And in that episode, we discussed no-fault divorce and how it might be introduced in England and Wales. So, two years on, tell us what has happened. Yeah, it's difficult to believe it's two years and so much has happened. Basically, the government had a consultation. And as a result of that, and as a result of the research done by Professor Liz Trinder from Exeter University and her team, which was called uh, Finding Fault, um, the government decided to go ahead with legislation in what was called the Divorce, Dissolution and Separation Bill. And that has been proceeding with some bumps along the road for a while now and uh, yesterday got through its final stages in the House of Commons. Amazing. And that that bill was brought about because of the Teeny Owens case? I think there are a number of factors. Um, Obviously, I and Resolution um, have been campaigning for this change for many years. And in fact, in the mid-90s, in the Family Law Act 1996, we actually got legislation that would have introduced no-fault divorce, but it was never implemented. So the campaigning had to start again, uh, and it's taken that long to get to where we are now. And it feels like we're behind so many other jurisdictions. I wonder why you think it took so long for us to implement it here in England and Wales. I think a number of reasons. You're right, a number of jurisdictions do have it. I think that the the political climate has changed since the mid-90s. The opposition there 
was was really quite about the principle of no-fault divorce in a time where some of the stigma about divorce generally remained. I think society has moved on since then. I think the Teeny Owens case certainly did shine a real spotlight on the injustice caused by the ability of one spouse to defend a divorce and keep the other spouse against her wishes locked in a marriage that was clearly dead. And I think even those commentators um, that might previously have thought that this reform undermined marriage, even those commentators realised that it, it can't be right for somebody to be locked in an unhappy marriage for five years against their wishes. So I think that the research into the public's view of how the current system was damaging and didn't help people move forward with their lives. I think all that contributed to the change and persuaded the government to bring this back and has led us to where we are today. So yesterday, a bill went to the committee stage and passed the committee stage. So that was the opportunity for any amendments to be made, wasn't it? So were any amendments made to the original bill? Um, Nothing of any significance whatsoever. There are a couple of tidying up amendments that the government uh, introduced. And and so what happens at committee stage often is that, that there is a committee of the House. And in fact, that happened the first time around last year and I gave evidence to the committee uh, this time round because that process had been gone through and the legislation just got halted because first of all of the summer recess last year and then if you'll recall we had the prorogation of parliament yes. that the Supreme Court subsequently ruled as unlawful and then we had the the general election. And I've described the, the, the progress of the bill has been a bit like that whack-a-mole game, if you remember that, where it kept on popping its head up above the parapets only to be sort of thwacked down. And so this time round, it, it's been fast-tracked effectively. It started in the Lords this time round and went through the committee stage there with a, with a fuller debate. But because it had already done that and because of what had gone before, the government put the committee stage before the whole House, which effectively limits the amount of scrutiny and time that it can get. And it wrapped up all the remaining stages, which is the report stage and then the third reading. So it went through all its remaining stages yesterday in one fell swoop. Gosh, so somebody definitely wanted that to pass then, didn't they? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the government was very clear that this now needed to be done and we needed to sort of get the legislation sorted out. So royal assent should follow very quickly. Um, That's basically just a rubber stamping process. So we should have the legislation on the statute books. And then we start the process of changing the rules, the forms, the online processes, and that'll take a little time. Right. So in terms of the implementation timetable, how long do you think it will take at this this stage? What, What are the indications? Well, the Lord Chancellor, uh, Robert Buckland, actually said in the House yesterday that it was likely to be autumn 2021. Because right. so, that's that's different to how we originally thought it might be, isn't it? Because I think originally there was some talk of April 2021. So is there some significance in pushing that back? I think it's mostly just to make sure that there's enough time to do the work that needs to be done. The rule changes tend to happen. The bigger rule changes tend to happen in two blocks in April and October. And I think the feeling is that there's probably just a bit too much to be done by April. I, I certainly don't rule it out but I think it's much more likely to be 
to be the autumn sort of major rule changes that we see that. So they've got to get all the forms sorted out. Um, the online process will need re-engineering for the new system. So there's quite a bit to be done and some detail to be worked through. But the important thing, of course, Kate, is that the principle has now been confirmed. And uh, unlike with the 1996 Act, where they had to test a sort of a pilot scheme of information centres and things like that, we haven't got to go through all that again. So it's about rule change. It's about process change. And it's going to happen. So we just need to be a bit patient. Right. So is is it definitely the case then, Nigel, that nothing can now stop this from becoming law? I was a little bit wary of saying yes. absolutely nothing. <laughs> but I think this time round we can we can say with real confidence that it's going to happen. So uh, I, I'm, as much confidence as I could possibly give, yes, it's going to happen. It's long overdue. This is just going to help, help countless families to have a better divorce, a more amicable divorce. Right. Yeah. And and do you think people will be waiting for this to come in now? So do you think we'll see maybe a a dip in the divorce rate for a while now? It's almost guaranteed, I say almost, (laughs) to caveat it, um, that this will happen. I think some people may wait. I think an important practice point to note is that when it becomes law and comes into force, every couple going through a divorce will then have to go through the six-month minimum notification period. So even if they have already been apart for 23 months and are one month short of the current two-year separation requirement, they would then have to wait that additional six months. So I think most people still, because we're talking autumn 2021, are probably going to think they need to get on with it. But what we can say to people now is, look, the government agrees with you that we wish we could do it a better way. We wish there was a no-fault way of doing it. But I think it might just be a bit too soon in the process for people to hold back. Some will, but I think most will probably feel they need to, they need to go ahead. On. Yeah, yeah. And let's, let's talk, if we may, a little bit about the detail of the bill and what has changed. So the thing that seems to have grabbed most of the headlines is we will no longer have a fault-based system. So instead of having to blame your spouse if you haven't been separated for either five years or two years if you both agree you will just be able to notify or put a notification in what else has changed apart from that nothing else apart from the consequential changes that come from that so the the really important thing is we get rid of the blame game we get rid of the ability to cite adultery or behavior and Currently, uh, the majority of people do use one of those two, what we call facts, that subgrounds, if you like. And that's not necessarily the research says because they want to do so. It's because they don't wish or can't afford in many cases to wait a period of at least two years to do it by consent. Because until you get your divorce underway, you can't access the powers of the court to deal with any dispute about your finances. You can't, for example, get pension sharing or or get an order for the sale of the house or the transfer of assets. So people are forced down this, this blame route in order to, to get on with their lives and to plan for the future. Um, so that's the major change. And the whole point of the bill has been its simplicity in the sense that there may be other things that we could really look at that could improve the system. But the idea of this bill is to change just the process of divorce to get rid of the blame or the current mixture of blame and separation grounds 
and replace it with this notification period. And the other really important point, Kate, is for the first time, a couple will be able to jointly say that they wish to get a divorce. Yes, that's the bit, I guess, from my perspective, we're most excited about because Amicable is a couple's service. So to be able to start on that couple's journey from the outset is really important for lots of couples. I think as well, doesn't it make the process slightly shorter as well? So if you're divorcing as a couple, your six-month period for being separated starts when you file that notification. But if you're not doing the divorce as a couple, but you're just doing it as one person, I was led to believe that the starting point then for the six-month period is when the your partner gets the notification of the divorce and responds to that notification is that right no that's not right the um the period is exactly the same and indeed one of the one of the amendments uh, that was put down that was rejected um was to change the the, the whole system so that the six months didn't start to count until service the simplicity and a, a sort of clean basis for starting it on application now, when we come to look at the rules, we'll have a look perhaps at ways to make sure that people are encouraged to get on and serve. But a lot of these are done online anyway, so the service is automatic online. And although there's been this argument that people may issue a divorce and hang on to it and spring it on their partner, who knows nothing about it, cutting down on that whole 26-week period, the reality is that's very rare much more common, much more concern is the respondent, the recipient of the divorce, not actually acknowledging it to hold it up intentionally and often as as a continuation of coercive control. And so that's the greater even, if you like, starting the period from the moment that you make your application addresses that point and and that's the more important thing to address. Right. Okay. And so for everybody, there's going to be a six month registration period. And then what's the process after you've registered your intent to divorce? Are there still the two stages like we have now? Yes, yes. Um, there'll be one of the other things that the that the bill will, does is to get rid of some of the archaic language. So it will be an application for a divorce order. What is now called decree nisi will become a conditional order of divorce and decree absolute will be a final order of divorce. But it's still that two-stage process. So you make your application. You've got a minimum period of 20 weeks to conditional order and a minimum period of six weeks to final order. So that six-week gap between the two that we have at the moment remains. And is there any impact of this process on people who are making financial applications to the court? So will that change? No, nothing changes at all in terms of the process for financial applications. I mean, there are a couple of sort of more esoteric points around um, how you can hold up the final divorce order, what is now the decree absolute, until the finances have been sorted. That that will be built in, but that's sort of, if you like, a consequence of the change rather than anything substantively different in the law. So it simply changes the way you get a divorce. It doesn't change anything else around it. And as you say, it also covers a dissolution of civil partnerships as well. And what do you think will happen when the no-fault laws go through? Do you see there being a big 
increase in the number of people who will apply for a divorce? There might be a blip upwards. A lot of the opponents of the bill have said that it will increase the divorce rate, but this is all based on the fallacy that this makes divorce easier, which it doesn't and not easier. There may be a blip for those people who have currently been waiting two years, and I mentioned that earlier. So if you've been apart for 23 months and you were one month short of starting your divorce on two years, you're unlikely, probably, to want to wait another six months. And so there may be a blip of people who are in the separation periods that bring forward their intention to divorce so they don't have to wait that extra time. But the international research for other jurisdictions that have this process shows that there is no long-term impact at all on divorce rates as a result of bringing in a no-fault process. But presumably there are huge impacts in terms of the likelihood of people having a more amicable process, being able to co-parent and all the benefits that we've heard about. Yeah, that's exactly what the research shows. It's why, of course, Resolution have been so keen on promoting this change. It came through from Liz Trinder's research that that was the case. And, you know, all the research about the fact that it's not so much the divorce itself that can be damaging to children, it's the conflict generated by it. This change in the process won't remove conflict and distress and upset from the process, but it will reduce it. And the current process that we have actually exacerbates it. And that's why the change is important. Can you foresee any unintended consequences of a a change like this? Any negative ones, I guess I mean? I can't. No, I really can't. And that's why I've been such a passionate advocate of of this reform for almost three decades now. Um, It's why I came back for a second stint as as chair of resolution, having been chair during the Family Law Act period in the mid-90s. It was kind of unfinished business for me and for the organisation for our members and for all the all the people that we try to help through this process in the best way possible, which is the whole ethos of resolution. And you mentioned earlier that this was, in essence, a very simple bill and therefore quite narrow in its focus. It, it wasn't going to address everything. And presumably that was because people wanted this to get through and get passed. So at least we'd cleared the first hurdle. What other reforms do you think ideally would come on the back of this? I don't think anything will come on the back of it as such. There are a couple of important things. I think our next big battle is cohabitation law reform. And that's going to be a hard nut to crack, but we will keep at it. It's it's very much part of Resolution's campaigning agenda. Interestingly, I think that we are waiting to see what the government does about at least some legal aid for early advice it was interesting that the, the chair of the Justice Select Committee, Sir Bob Neill, actually did raise that issue again in yesterday's debate, saying that it's really important to get some early legal advice to people, not least because solicitors are the gateway to much of the mediation that goes on. And we know that when legal aid was cut, so did the, the route into mediation for many people. And we've never really got that back. So I think that, that some legal aid is likely to come back. Um, It's just a question of what it looks like. And legal aid that's not just restricted to people who have got domestic violence in their kind of narrative, you mean? So a a wider encompassing of legal aid? Yeah, to bring back into scope some legal aid, at least for early advice, so people can get a steer. Uh, I think the government might be persuaded of that because 
all the evidence is that people who don't get any legal advice at all go to court when they don't have to go to court, where they could have found out from five or 10 minutes with a family lawyer, a different way of doing things, look at different options, dispel some of the misconceptions and myths that people go into this with. And so, you know, it should end up saving the government money, which is probably the, the surefire route to getting something changed. If you can you can show government that it will actually save rather than cost money, you've got a fighting chance for getting it through. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. You know the way to their hearts. <laughs> yeah. Their pockets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, look, Nigel, that was absolutely fascinating. I'm, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity just to find out exactly what's happened, what's likely to happen with the bill's progress. Are you popping the champagne cork just yet or do you think there's still some work to do? I like champagne, I confess. So I, I, I will look at various stages. So, um, yeah, a bit of champagne after last night. I might have another go at Royal Ascent. And then, you know, at various stages, whilst we get the rules sorted out, you know, any excuse really, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. How long before Royal Ascent do you think? I think that's likely to happen really quickly. You know, it can happen the, the next day. It hasn't. but it, it is just a rubber stamp. So, you know, within the next couple of weeks, hopefully. That's great. Nigel, how can people find out more about you, what you do or get in touch? They can get in touch through Mills and Reeve, either through our main website or through our divorce.co.uk website. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. The rather immodest handle of at top family lawyer, which I can only apologize for, but it seems to do the trick. Um, and you, know, you can find me if you need to get in touch with me. You can find me and uh, I'll happily speak to anybody about this because it's uh, a cause so close to my heart. Oh, thank you. I think the top family lawyer is very well deserved. <laughs> you can find out more about Amicable at www.amicable.io or you can follow me on Twitter at Kate underscore daily or you can follow the divorce podcast at divorce underscore podcast. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.